Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hello, it's the April edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson, including the Lynx effect on women in space, a close-up look at the X-Core space plane, a hot new mission to the sun, and Apollo 15 astronaut Al Warden on what it's like to be totally alone. You want to feel insignificant? Go behind the moon sometime. That'll make you really feel like you're nothing. Much more from Al Warden later. Our studio guest is Dr Lucy Green, a space scientist at UCL's Mallard Space Science Laboratory and a familiar face from numerous TV programmes, not least Stargazing Live. Lucy, having heard Al Warden uh, just talking about the insignificance of being on the other side of the moon, do you have ambitions to go into space? I don't. (laughs) I've always viewed myself as someone who's... I'm actually quite clumsy, so I don't trust myself to be in charge of anything. But if someone would take me for a ride, then yes, I absolutely would. So if someone offered, you'd say say yes, but otherwise... Yeah, so the space tourism appeals to me, rather than being an astronaut as such. You specialise in the Sun. You're part of ESA's Solar Orbiter mission. Now, this is going to be the next generation mission to study our nearest star, due to launch 2017. Now, the Sun is immensely violent compared with our nearest sort of neighbours and and our Moon. And you're particularly interested in the atmosphere of the Sun. So, what is it about the atmosphere of the Sun that sort of captured your imagination and made it the focus of your research? Well, I remember clearly the first time I looked at the sun not through the full range of visible light so just by using a filter and then looking with the human eye but by using a telescope that had a particular filter on it called a hydrogen alpha filter and this is something that many amateur astronomers will have nowadays and when you look at the sun through a filter you suddenly see that it has all this activity and structure and I remember clearly that moment where the sun was transformed from being this placid yellow disc to being a violent and active object with things happening all the time in the atmosphere and that's what drew me in that that transition and realising that the sun was really, really interesting. And there's also this sort of fascinating imbalance isn't there between the temperature on the sun's surface and the temperature in the atmosphere. It's a very good point and it's something that has intrigued scientists since the mid-1800s in fact. So when we look at the surface of the sun it has a temperature of about 6,000 degrees or 6,000 Kelvin. But when you look at the atmosphere, the gases there have a temperature of millions of degrees, millions of Kelvin. And that is Okay, it's counterintuitive, but it also goes against the laws of thermodynamics to have a hot atmosphere lying above a cool surface. So it's been a big challenge to understand where the energy comes from. But it is something that it's an area where a lot of progress has been made. And it turns out it's probably related to um, other forms of activity that are driven by the magnetic field that threads through or fills the sun's atmosphere. So I'm guessing then that there there are going to be 10 instruments on board the solar orbiter. It's currently being constructed in Stevenage, Astrium UK, Mm -hmm. that your instrument is potentially then going to be looking at... Magnetic structures, <laughs> <Yes>. absolutely. <laughs> You're right. So Solar Orbiter has this suite of telescopes on board and 
it really is unique in that fact that it has instruments that can not only look at the magnetic structures in the sun's atmosphere um, and the instrument that I'm mostly or most closely involved with is looking at the sun in ultraviolet light and when you look at the sun that way the atmosphere is shown to be full of all these arches and actually they're magnetic arches so you might think about you know, having your bar magnet and putting iron filings over it and seeing these magnetic field lines or lines of force being revealed the sun's atmosphere is just the same full of arches magnetic fields so we're going to be looking at the sun but then also solar orbiter will be sitting in the sun's very extended atmosphere and so it will also carry telescope or to carry instruments that can measure the magnetic fields around the spacecraft that ultimately come from those magnetic arches that we're looking at in the atmosphere it's very close actually isn't it it's i looked it up actually 45 million kilometres away which still sounds huge but that's actually within the orbit of Mercury. That's right so when Solar Orbiter arrives in its correct orbit after three and a half years of travelling towards the Sun it will be the closest man-made object to the Sun and that will give us a unique position to study the sun from. But actually, NASA has sent spacecraft close to the sun before, so the Helios mission. But Solar Orbiter, with its ability to look at the sun, makes it totally unique. And you're not just interested in the sun, you're interested in the sun's effect on the Earth. We know it's light and, and energy, but I, I've always been intrigued by the solar wind, this, these particles spewing out from the sun, and, and they affect us. They do. The sun, because it has this hot atmosphere that we mentioned earlier, it's not able to hold on to that hot atmosphere, so it streams out into space. It's expanding. So unlike the Earth, we have our atmosphere trapped to us, gravity is holding it in. On the sun, gravity cannot retain the atmosphere, and it's it streams out at hundreds of kilometres a second into the solar system and that's what forms the solar wind and it keeps going until well until what <laughs> until it meets the stuff within the stars and forms this huge bubble and solar orbiter wants to understand how the solar wind is formed and that's interacting that solar wind with the earth's magnetic field it is. So we are sitting in this gusty outflow, this solar wind, and it's constantly washing over the Earth's magnetic field, squashing it on the sunward side, drawing it out into a long tail on, on the other side, and it sort of moves like a windsock rippling all the time in this wind. I love your use of words, a gusty outflow. Very good. Um, in terms of the impact on Earth, does it matter? I mean, does it affect us at all? It does. It has very, very large effects, and actually that's an area of research at the moment that we would call collectively space weather. So this gusty wind that flows tens of, or say, 70,000 kilometres above our heads, above outside the Earth's magnetic field, creates space weather above our heads. And all the time, the Earth's magnetic field is changing in response to that, and that drives a series of electrical currents that propagate down through our magnetic field, down into our atmosphere, and even to the surface of the Earth that drive, well, the space weather effects we commonly talk about are problems to electricity networks, problems with radio communications, satellite problems. I mean, you name it, our technological infrastructure feels the effect of this space weather. And what's happening in terms of the solar maximum at the moment? Because there is supposed to be this point in an, uh, the 11-year cycle where it reaches its peak and that's when you're more likely to, to experience these effects of, of space weather. But this maximum seems to be drifting at the moment, mm. doesn't it? The current maximum has been absolute, absolutely fascinating for us. So you're right, the sun has an 11-year activity cycle that's driven by sunspots, magnetic features at the surface of the sun. Um, when there's lots of sunspots, we have lots of magnetic fields that drives activity. 
And we've been trying to predict when the current maximum would happen. First of all, it was predicted that it was going to happen in 2011. It didn't happen. Then we said 2012, didn't happen. And here we are in 2013. And we're probably there now. But it will be in hindsight, we'll be able to go back and have a look. And what makes the sun so interesting at the moment is it's not acting as we expect it to. During the space age, we had very, very active sun. And now, with this very delayed maximum in activity, we're starting to realise that actually what happened in the space age probably isn't the normal character of the sun and we seem to be coming out of a heightened phase of activity and in the coming decades the sun is looking likely to be more quiet than it has been but still interesting and i suppose with this idea of solar maximum we're just looking at it in such a narrow time frame whereas really we should be looking at it in in sort of cosmic time geological time you know thousands millions billions of years we absolutely should the age of our sun is four and a half thousand million years and we've been looking at it during the space age for 50 years (laughs) so it really puts it into context but then we have observations of sunspots which shows us the solar cycle they date back maybe to the mid 1800s So we've got 150 or so years there. But still, that's a tiny amount of time. And what's been really interesting is that there was a time in the um, uh, end of the 1600s, early 1700s, where sunspots disappeared from the sun. And it was called the Maunda Minimum. Very, very low solar activity. And the reason that got given this special name, Maunda, after the person who studied the, the low phase of activity, was that we thought it was unusual that the sunspots would disappear, the activity would stop. Now we're thinking, actually, maybe that's not so uncommon. <laughs> and, and there is, a, well, a significant chance within the next, say, 150 years, people are saying that, well, there might be a 50% chance that the sun would go back into a more de minimum and the sunspots would disappear again. Well, Lucy, stay with us. Um, we'd value your opinion on the, uh, the next couple of stories. Absolutely, particularly on this one. The Lynx brand, according to its website, is about one thing, getting the girl. It appeals to the sort of post-ironic lads mag brigade with tongue firmly in cheek. One of its latest deodorants, for instance, is a heady mix that will apparently give you the scent of an astronaut. Goodness knows what that would be in a confined space. And is guaranteed to take girls sky high or even to another planet. Now, earlier this year, Lynx launched a new ad campaign with a competition offering an unbelievable prize, a trip into space for 22 passengers. The problem is that for half the world's population, namely the female half, it appeared we were being excluded. Under the tagline, leave a man, come back a hero, the campaign that followed was specifically aimed at men. And not everyone was happy about this, not least our space boffin regular, Kate Arkless Gray. Well, Kate applied to be one of these uh, in with a chance. She's currently in the top five of the first 200 who will go through to the next round, so she's in with a very good chance there. And so I asked her, first of all, can you blame Lynx, though, when their job is to sell products and their products are aimed at men? Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm not expecting Lynx, Axe, Unilever to go out and try and promote space flight to young women. Of course I'm not. That would be ridiculous. 
what I am expecting them to do is, is just be a bit more creative. You know, think differently about the way they're advertising their product. What they've done with this is basically fallen back on a, an old stereotype. In fact, I'd like to think an outdated stereotype that women are just there as trophies and it's, it's only the men that can be the, you know, the hunky hero rescuers. And I don't, you know, I don't think that's really doing them any favours, to be honest. At some point... I'm not going to be the only one thinking their adverts are outdated and maybe their their products are outdated. So what they could have done, they had a great opportunity here to continue their brand message uh, that wearing a Lynx product makes you more attractive to the opposite sex and they could have done it, played with it a bit, had a female astronaut and only the guy wearing the Lynx product gets the female astronaut that sticks with their brand and yet it challenges current assumptions. Now, the fact that you're in the top five at the moment means that you're definitely going to go through to the, the next stage. There are hopefully going to be plenty of women in that top 200, but that hasn't always been the case, has it? No, I mean, I applied as soon as the competition opened. I was one of the first people to sign up because it was a chance to go to space. I've always wanted to go to space. I will try however I can. And even if that means entering a competition which is based around a boy's deodorant, sure, if it'll get me there, I don't care. Um, and then we we realised, actually, I've got some friends from Space University who've also applied, but in Mexico, women weren't allowed to apply at all. And we kicked up a bit of a fuss, and we found that in eight countries, women could not apply to this, including Russia, which is ridiculous, because Russia sent the first woman to space... Um, Russia has actually just chosen, in its latest cosmonaut selection, has chosen a woman. So the idea that Russian women couldn't apply, were actively uh, stopped from applying for this competition, it just seemed a bit much. And this year is the 50th anniversary as well of Valentina Tereshkova. So even even more reasons for them to just stop and think, that's, I mean, that's crazy, you can't... I don't know. I just, if I was the the advertising team in Russia, I would maybe have, maybe somebody should have mentioned that. I don't know. Mona, still some time left before the um, deadline approaches at the end of April. So perhaps what we should encourage, and I say we, I mean you, me, and every other woman out there uh, who's interested in going to space, is perhaps encourage more women is to try and beat them at their own game. Try and get as many women as possible to get into that final 200, to get into the shortlist, to slightly upset the odds. Absolutely. Well, there's still time, as you say, you can apply. And if you are interested in applying and you'd like some help and support from other space fanatic females, uh, there's a group of us, we're called the Astro Girls, and that's G-R-R-L-S. I didn't just go American on you for no reason. And you can find us on Twitter and we've got a Facebook page and we're all there supporting each other, giving each other ideas of, you know, how to get votes and of course voting for one another because like you say the more women that we have in there the higher the chance that we'll we'll get a woman in space and i have done that i've uploaded my face into an astronaut's um visor which is which is what you do i have to get into the top 200 to go through to the next round and hopefully 
if I get in, if other women apply, there will be more women on that shortlist. So here's my campaign, folks. Vote for me. And Lucy, if you don't vote for me, you're in big trouble. <laughs> I will tweet uh, the link, of course. Is there not a danger with this that the women can come across a little humourless? Well, I sort of thought that at the beginning, to be honest. I just, I did just think, well, what do you expect? Because their ads have been funny. But what shocked me, and I just thought, well, yeah, that's OK. We'll apply anyway. Women will apply anyway. But what shocked me was when Kate said that all those countries hadn't actually allowed women in. And when you look at the number of women that are on that 200, there are not many at all and that's when I thought whoa I've made too many assumptions I should just try and get in there in order to even things Mm. up a bit yeah I totally agree I was shocked to hear that and it's amazing that they have such a backward attitude (laughs) so vote for Sue (laughs) now the winners of this competition will fly into space on XCOR's Lynx space plane you see what those clever deodorant marketing people did there you see Unlike other entries into the private space market, the Lynx has been designed to take off and land on a runway. The first plane is taking shape in a small hangar at the Mojave Air and Spaceport, an isolated airstrip deep in the desert. And I went to visit this workshop to see the Lynx, which really isn't very big. And after witnessing a test of the rocket ignition system, chatted to XCOR CEO Jeff Greeson. We're at the phase of space now that's sort of like the the period in aviation leading up to the First World War where you know, the configurations differed wildly. People weren't sure if seaplanes or land planes were going to be interesting. Are they biplanes or triplanes or monoplanes? Did the pilot go in the front or in the back? And all those things are going to be tried. That's part of what makes this exciting is the world's full of expert or self-proclaimed expert opinion about what will and won't work in space but there's been remarkably little. Let's go and find out. And it's time for that phase to happen now. And in terms of the the versatility, what will your space plane be able to do? Because you're you're not just pitching for for space tourism. Yeah, from the beginning, we've had three markets for the Lynx. Um, One of them is, as you say, people, some of whom are paying their own way and some of whom are paid researchers for other organizations. Payloads, mostly scientific or industrial experiments of one kind or another that are using the zero gravity or that want to get above the atmosphere. And then we can carry uh, upper stages, uh, a small expendable rocket on the back, and use that to do other missions, primarily inserting 10-kilogram class microsatellites into orbit. So actually, although you'll be suborbital missions, you can actually launch to orbit? Eventually. That's the third of the markets that we're going to address, and it does take some small changes to the vehicle to adapt to that mission, but that's been always part of our roadmap from the beginning. And what will it be like flying in it? Because essentially, you look at the, the picture behind you, which is, uh, it, it's not very big. It's essentially a huge, great rocket with a two-seater cab stuck on the front. I mean, I'm sure I am dismissing years and years of research and development, but that's what it looks like. You know, it's, it's, it's in some ways analogous to the experience of being in a high-performance fighter aircraft. Uh, you know, it, it's a similar style of cockpit, uh, you know, it's like that only more so because we accelerate faster, we take off faster, we point up steeper, and we climb much, much, much higher. Uh, and because we are going so fast straight up, you leave the atmosphere behind, and there's three minutes of zero gravity as you coast above the atmosphere before you come back in and, and re-enter. And how safe is it? I mean, how safe are any of these ideas? Being, you're essentially being strapped to a rocket. Well, you're being strapped to a rocket but not to a missile. 
the people associate a lot of things with with rockets because they confuse them with missiles. And after all, you don't expect to get a missile back. At least you hope not. Uh, and and these are being developed from the beginning as a as a form of transportation, like a vehicle, like an airplane. But the only answer you can really give to how safe it's going to be is we have to find out. And one of the things that I personally have fought for is the regulatory regime that we're in where we are forced to disclose what our safety record has been to the traveling public so that they can know the truth of the situation and decide for themselves if the experience is worth the risk. So the, the point is to be up front, say, this is, this is how successful we've been, this is how many yeah, successes we've had. This is how many we've... flights, this is how many issues we've had, you know, it's either worth it to you or it's not. So, go, so that's very different, really, to commercial aircraft. Well, it's not widely known now, but one of the reasons why governments had to step in to regulate every detail of how aircraft are made is because the government wished to promote air travel because of its military importance so that they actively worked to keep secret what the safety record of the carriers were. Uh, you know, if we are going to have different players all competing to build the most cost-effective and the safest and the ship that appeals the best to the traveling public, uh, the public has to know the facts about what our safety records is. Now, as I understand it, one of the unique aspects of your design is the rocket engine that can ignite and reignite. So, you know, you're, you're lighted to get there, you can turn it off, you can turn it back on again. How much of a challenge was it to develop that sort of technology? Quite. <laughs> uh, there is nothing particularly easy about the rocket business. It's not the way people think of it. You know, it's, it's not white-coated scientists with German accents scrawling equations on whiteboards. What it is is the detailed, finicky work of running things over and over again and finding out all the ways that it can go wrong and changing them so that that doesn't happen. I really liked him. Head of X-Corps, Jeff Greeson, talking to me at the uh, Mojave Air and Spaceport. If you don't win this competition, Sue, $95,000 will buy you a seat. <laughs> I'm not sure where you can afford that. I think, funnily enough, I'm slightly more nervous after hearing that piece, particularly when he said it was like being strapped to a rocket but not to a missile, as if that was meant to actually make you feel better about it. Lucy, you, you, you have got the same sort of expression. Yeah, I have. I mean, it would be fantastic to be able to take part in space tourism but the safety record well i mean that how how do you know these things are very very difficult i, I think you have the to admire his honesty there yes, yeah it was very honest you have to decide whether the experience is worth the risk i think that's what was so shocking about that in a way was that he he was saying the things that most of the time you know are there but are unsaid i quite like that about it him. I agree. He was a great interviewee. And we'll have more from the Mojave Air and Spaceport uh, next month. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And we're very pleased to welcome some new sponsors, ABSL Space Products, who, among other things, make batteries for the International Space Station. We're going back to July 1971 now and the first of the Apollo J-class missions designed to put science first. Good. This is really a rock and roll ride, isn't it? Never been on a ride like this before. Oh, boy. I'm glad they got this great suspension system on this thing. 
While Dave Scott and Jim Irwin were bouncing around in their lunar rover, above them in orbit, Command Module Pilot Al Warden was carrying out observations of his own. Now, the role of the Command Module Pilot often gets overlooked, but he was effectively the second-in-command of the mission and had his own packed schedule of science to carry out. Al Warden was also a member of an unusual club. He was one of only seven men who have been totally alone in space in orbit around the moon, sometimes completely cut off from the rest of humanity. Well, thanks to the nice people at Space Lectures, I went to meet Al when he was over in Yorkshire recently to talk to him about this total isolation. It's kind of funny in a way. Everybody's focused on those who land on the moon, but their function is to pick up a rock. They're just out gathering rocks, and they bring all those rocks back, they get analyzed uh, in the laboratories back in Houston, and then they get compared to the remote sensing data that we collected from lunar orbit, and out of that you can compile a program that uh, allows you then to analyze the entire surface of the moon without ever setting foot on it. You can do it from, from orbit quite easily, actually. I photographed, as an example, in high resolution, about 25% of the lunar surface, the first time that had ever been done. Uh, I mapped about that same... 25% of the moon's surface. Uh, that's a lot of data uh, to come back. In fact, I guess they're probably still looking at it. I'm interested in, in your thoughts as the lander separated from mm -hmm. the command module, and you see it getting smaller and smaller mm -hmm. in the window. What goes through your mind when, when that's happening? Well, <laughs> first off, you wish them luck. You know, I hope you land okay. The second thought is, gee, I'm glad they've gone, because now i got this place all to myself. Uh, and so I had three wonderful days uh, in a spacecraft all by myself. And that spacecraft was not very big to begin with, but with three people in it, it's really small. And when I had it all to myself, I had lots of room to move and do whatever I wanted to do. So uh, it, was, it, it was kind of stressful in a way because they were going to go down and land, and that's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, but it was also very calming and peaceful because now I had that all to myself. Calming and peaceful, wasn't it lonely? Uh, you know, there's a thing about being alone and there's a thing about being lonely, and they're two different things. I was alone, but I was not lonely. Um, my background was uh, as a fighter pilot in the Air Force and then as a test pilot, and that was mostly in fighter airplanes. I was very used to being by myself. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, didn't have to talk to Dave and Jim anymore. Uh, except once, every time I come around, it's just say hi. Uh, on the backside of the moon, I didn't even have to talk to Houston, and that was the best part of the flight. A quarter of a million miles away, though. Yeah, you're a long ways away, and and I guess the thing that uh, that that most impressed me about being in lunar orbit, and particularly the times when I was by myself, was that every time I came around the backside of the moon, I got to a window where I could watch the Earth rise, and that was really phenomenal. Uh, and I did that 75 times, um, and, and it was just a spectacular sight. The backside of the moon where I was, one section of the orbit was shadowed from both the sun and the earth, so it was complete darkness. And uh, what I found there was that the, that, that, that the number of stars were just, I mean, so, e so immense. In fact, I couldn't pick out individual stars. It was like a sheet of light. And uh, I, I found that fascinating because it changed my ideas about what we think about the universe. Uh, and I realized that we build theories about uh, 
physical things and about the earth and about the moon and about the universe out there based on what we can see and we can touch and we can measure and that kind of thing. And I realized that we kind of missed the boat on the universe out there in our thinking because there's just billions of stars out there. Uh, the Milky Way galaxy that we're in contains billions of stars, not just a few. And there are billions of galaxies out there. So what does that tell you about the universe? Well, it tells you that we just don't think big enough. Did that not make you feel even smaller and even more alone? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You want, to, you want to feel insignificant? Go behind the moon sometime. Uh, that'll make you really feel like you're not, nothing. Uh, even looking back at the Earth, you feel that way because... Uh, the Earth, of course, is home, and you associate that with home, and it's the only colorful planet we can see, um, and yet it's about the size of the moon when you're out there looking back. It's not much bigger. So you realize that all these objects are, you have to put them on a scale some way uh, to, to make any sense out of it, and the further away from the Earth you get, the smaller it gets, and you feel pretty small. I'm intrigued that you said you preferred being out of contact with Houston. Why was that? Oh, I didn't need somebody yammering in my ear while I was out there. Uh, I had a lot of work to do. I had a lot of things that I was trying to accomplish. Uh, and, it's, and it's kind of a joke. It's it, not really true. Uh, I, I kind of say that in a joking way. Uh, if anything serious were to come up, I would certainly want them to be able to contact me. But if everything was going well, I didn't need to talk to them. Uh, and I could concentrate on the science that I was doing, so I was very comfortable uh, back there without having to talk to Houston. Are there lessons that astronauts in the future can learn if uh, and when we return to the moon or go on to, to Mars and start having these long-duration missions, whether you know alone or as a couple, as, as one suggestion in the last few weeks, or even a small group? Are there lessons to be learned from, from your experiences? Oh, I think, I think there probably are, uh, although we all had different experiences. Uh, the, the, the lesson I got was don't get too friendly with your crew. Uh, long periods of time uh, that you spend with the other two, uh, and, and I found that I was more tuned to doing the job I had to do than I was in interfacing with them. We all had things to do, but, uh, but I focused on the, on the operations that I had to do. And I think there's a lesson there. I, we were very good professionally. We really worked well together professionally. But we're not particularly great friends. We're used to these images of, of the footprints yeah. on the moon, and the, the first footprint, the last footprint. Um, these footprints, which will be there pretty much forever, mm -hmm. well, as long as the, the moon is there. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned in your book, um, all the way between the Earth and the moon, you're dumping urine into space. Right. I, I, I guess, essentially, your urine is probably in orbit around the moon. So that, is that your, your legacy? It could, well, it, it, it could be. Uh, we actually made some urine dumps when we were in lunar orbit. What, what we'd have to do is uh, we'd open the valve and, and flush it all out, and then make a trajectory change so we got out of the orbit of where we went. Yeah, it could still be there. However, the moon doesn't have enough gravity to retain particles in orbit, and that's why there's no atmosphere. Uh, there's a thing called escape velocity, and then there's a thing that goes, that well, 
any particle that's in that's in orbit has a mean free molecular velocity. That means that it's moving around. Here in our atmosphere, there are molecules banging together all the time, uh, but they never get fast enough to escape the Earth's gravity. On the moon, that mean free molecular velocity was greater than the escape velocity of the moon. So all the light elements are gone. There's no atmosphere. So I suspect anything that we dumped uh, has probably kind of disappeared by now. Oh, so you have, you have nothing there. Nothing I don't left. think I don't think there's any. I my guess is there's nothing left. I don't know, but I might get, that'd be my guess. Yeah. See, I bet no one's ever asked him about his urine before. <laughs> <laughs> That's Apollo 15 command module pilot Al Warden, my new favourite Apollo astronaut. I should clarify, so I, did, I tweeted about this as my new favourite astronaut. Obviously, Tim Peake is my favourite astronaut. Uh, Al Warden is my second favourite astronaut, my, my favourite Apollo astronaut. Uh, I must also thank uh, Space Lectures again for making that interview possible. And we'll put up a link to Space Lectures on our Facebook page. And one more bit of Al Warden's wisdom uh, right at the end of the podcast. He's amazing, He's isn't great, he? isn't he? I thought oh. he put the work of the um, Apollo astronauts on the moon in context. <laughs> yes, their function is just to pick up a rock. <laughs> I love that. Wasn't that nice, though, Lucy, when he mentioned about um, looking at the stars and seeing it as a sheet of light? That was very moving. And it's really nice to have that perspective of looking out into our, our own galaxy because there's so much focus about looking back at the Earth and, and feeling that separation and the fragility of the Earth. But looking at the stars and, and realising that we're just a tiny part of an immense universe was really nice. I'd never heard him be interviewed before. And perhaps that's why maybe NASA kept him on a tight leash. Because he's his book is actually really good. His book, his book is excellent. It's thoroughly recommended. Well, thank you to our studio guest, Lucy Green from Mullard Space Science Laboratory. The Space Boffins podcast is supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and with a grant from the UK Space Agency. And finally, after all the discussion about whether Sue and I should be the married couple sent to Mars, here's what I hope will be the final word on the matter from my second favourite astronaut, Apollo 15's Al Warden. I think this plan of uh, Tito's to uh, send a married couple to Mars is just a gimmick. There's absolutely no value in it other than the fact that we've been able to, we might be able to send somebody there. It has no scientific value. It has no value to the country. And I question sending a married couple on an 18-month trip locked up together in a small spacecraft where they got to face each other 24 hours a day. I'm not sure how that's going to work either. I couldn't have put it better myself. I'm Sue Nelson. I'm Richard Holligan. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Space Boffins. And we'll be back in a month. Thanks for listening.